Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Volrath Feed. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef here at the Volrath Company. And together with my co-host and producer, Justin Pearson, uh, we enjoy bringing you the lives and stories uh, from the range of people that we find make up the world of commercial food service. It's a huge industry and it's been kicked hard right now, but if you know the people in it, you'll know they will fight, fight hard and bring it back bigger and better than before. It's what they do and who they are. So Justin, today we have another great show ahead of us. Mm -hmm. With us today is TJ Shire on the show, who does a ton of things and continues to add to his impressive resume. If you're in the restaurant industry and you're looking for ways to improve, come back, as we talk about with coming out of COVID here and some of the changes that we need to make, maybe it's in doing things better, more efficiently, or motivating people differently, he's definitely a guy that has some answers there for people to... uh, to listen to yeah i believe there's going to be a lot of value taken from this episode specifically in those areas where people can grab some information some tidbits some pointers some tips some tricks where they can apply directly to their businesses and to their employees because tj like you said an impressive resume and uh, he's been around uh, does the talking circuit and there's just a wealth of information and experience there that that he's also willing to share which is fantastic mm-hmm. well you know the the big thing with him is it's like when you go to the store and you're in the appliance area or wherever you are and the salesperson comes over and you ask him a question and they pick up the box and start reading it just like you're going to do <laughs> it's like you immediately know like ah oh, gosh uh, get, find me somebody who knows what they're talking about right. tj is one of those guys he's done it he's mm-hmm. he's worked in the trenches he owns restaurants he's he's cut his teeth uh, as they say, running and being in the industry. So, you know, he's got some some insights and some, he's just legit, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's, proof 30, is in the pudding there, right? 35 years, I guess he's been in the industry for, that's a long time. You, you don't spend that amount of time in any industry without coming on the out on the other side with, with a little bit of info on how to uh, do things efficiently and effectively. Right. So he's president and founder of Incentive Solutions, which is a consulting company, president and founder of Smart Restaurant Group, uh, which which superior sandwich franchise franchisee is at one point running 17 successful restaurants in the sandwich industry, which is if you think about all the sandwich restaurants that are out there. So pretty competitive. He um, he's been an, he's an author. He's written books on. Oh, gosh. um Motivating employees, keeping good employees, effective food service operations, recruiting and selection, catering. His, I think his latest uh, is Catering Domination. Offpremisedomination.com is his website. And it's uh, well, takeout. It's all about really what we're going through now, I think, in COVID or coming out of COVID, hopefully, with the changing landscape, right? I think in dining will come back, but I think delivery, curbside, uh, pick up all, all those different areas that have really kind of sustained the industry now when dining in wasn't the thing are still going to be here at some level. Mm-hmm. And you got to figure it out as an operator. So yeah. I think he's got some good advice, hopefully, for us there with this off premise domination.com that he's doing. Always leadership in, in any business is important. He's, he's doing uh, something there with virtualleaders.com, which is a video platform. So he's just done a ton of different things. 
in this industry. Yeah, along with all the the advice and insights that he has in regards to these these different fields, I'm also very interested in talking about time management. Because mm-hmm. how, how do you do that with, with so many different irons in the fire without them suffering quality? You know, that I bet he has some really good insights on how to balance the things that are important uh, in your professional career while still maintaining your personal life as well. Oh, yeah. The restaurant industry is brutal. We've talked about that before on the show with guests that, you know, if you're in this industry, you're just accepting that you're going to have long days, long weeks, and it's going to be what it is. But you hope that the joy you get from it and the satisfaction and you get to make a buck, raise your family too, you know, that's that's the stuff you got to work for. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to be interested in as well. He he'll, he talks about loyalty from employees, loyalty from guests, and loyalty is a very important, uh, excuse me, a very um, desirable thing to get. Right, Jeffrey Gittimer, We had him at a sales meeting, and he's he said a quote that's always stuck with me. And what he said was, "Customer satisfaction is worthless. Customer loyalty is priceless." Hmm. Right? It's the same with employees. You spend that time, talk about time management, you spend the time bringing a new employee in, showing them the way you want it done, getting them into the culture of the business, getting them to understand what you want, and to have them be a long-term employee then, that just just says a lot about the business. It it helps with running the business. When you have high turnover, you're just wasting a lot of time, Mm -hmm. always dealing with employees and the onboarding and training and all those things. So time for those can be helped with uh, some longevity as well. Yeah. When when you put the time into building that loyalty, loyalty is like the big umbrella that everything else kind of falls underneath. I see, I definitely see the value in, in pursuing that on both sides of the counter. Mm-hmm. Say, Justin, I, I have a feeling we're going to uh, need to get to our guest quickly today. So I think we should roll right into it. I think he's going to be one of those guys that's going to have some great stories, great lessons learned. Anyone who works in this industry will be able to relate to and find useful. I think it's going to be a little mini workshop or maybe depending on how you look at it, a little mini therapy session, but I think he's going to be a great guest. I want to make sure we have plenty of time to get to him. So once again, our guest today, TJ Shear, who has covered all the bases in the restaurant world. He's an owner, operator, uh, author, speaker, podcast host, trainer, and I'm sure I probably missed a few uh, credentials there for him, but he's with us here today. TJ, welcome to the Volrath Feed. Hey, appreciate you guys having me. Really looking forward to this episode today. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, you, you know, you've been in this industry a long time. You must, I'm, I'm assuming, just love the industry, the people. And um, we're always interested in how people get their start in our industry, in the food service world. Is it as a kid or how, how did your industry start and how did you get to what you're doing now? You know, I actually started in Chuck E. Cheese when I was 16 years old, and I'm not sure that would have classified in my mind at the time as being part of food service because I really, (laughs) uh, I'm old enough to be uh, starting back in 1982 with with Chuck E. Cheese when there was, you know, six asteroids and five Miss Pac-Mans, and it was basically a massive video arcade that served pizza. And so that's what (laughs) had appealed to me initially, and uh, I ended up working there for 18 years and. uh went out on my own in 2001 and started my own consulting and speaking business. But 
Essentially, now I build training materials for restaurants, help them with systems to grow. And then I've also been a franchisee of uh, Witch Witch Superior Sandwiches since 2007. So I love being in the reality of operations of a restaurant and then also being able to help others and teach them what to do and what not to do. I think that was something we were interested in is to when you were in the in the Chuck E. Cheese and you were thinking, I think I want to do something different. I mean, how did that, how'd you feel the confidence and, and know it was the right time for you to move out of that role and into what you're doing now? That's a really, really good question. And, you know, I can date, I left in 2001 and I still remember, uh, it was 1997. I was speaking at a training conference for a group called Chart, which is the Council of Hotel and Restaurant Trainers. And I'm still in that group today. I kind of describe it as an AA for restaurant trainers. We, we kind of sit around and <laughs> help each other get through the 12 steps of all the issues we deal with. But I was asked to speak at a conference on, on tra- at their conference on training. And I used incentives at Chuck E. Cheese to really reinforce training. And so I, I sat, sat down at the conference and I, I got up to speak. And right in front of me was Jim Sullivan. The, the man, the myth, the legend, who is you know one of, by far the leading hospitality consultant and speaker out there for decades. And I was just freaking out. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've got the <laughs> rock star down in the front row of the crowd. And um, I got done. I got through it. And he came up to me afterwards and he says, you need to go do this on your own. Nobody's playing in this space. You, you're on to something. And that, for the first time, really just reinforced, one, what I was doing with my company, but planted the seed of, wow, maybe I could do this elsewhere. And uh, it took me about three or four years. He was very, very generous in helping me kind of get out on my own. And uh, you know, it's real tough for me to repay somebody like that. So I've really just kind of taken it under my advisement to help others when they say, hey, how did you do that? What do you do? What do you not do? And so, uh, you know, kind of paying it forward like he did for me, I've helped some others go out on their own. But that's really what happened and, and got me out of working at Chuck E. Cheese for, for the 18 years that I had been there. Uh, do you have some success stories there of some uh, people that you've helped push along the way? Can we name names? Is it or does it? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, when you look at how, how to pay it forward, like I just mentioned, uh, I don't know if I've directly had the impact that Jim Sullivan had on me with others, but <laughs> through a, a large number of people that have been friends of mine in the chart organization, they've always asked me and some of the others like Jim, what do you do? What's the pitfalls? What do you need to look out for? And uh, probably the best example of that is uh, Jim Knight, who was at Hard Rock forever. And he has become a freaking amazing speaker. Uh, one, he, he has the whole hard rock piece. He's got the cool looking hair and the great clothes. And um, <laughs> he created a brand called Culture That Rocks. And I, I had very, very, very little to do with his success. But I think in just when somebody calls you and says, hey, what was it like to go through this? What should I be avoiding? Hey, what's it like self-publishing a book versus with working with a publisher? Hey, I just give a little bit of advice of what worked for me, and hopefully it helps them. And, uh, you know, I think there's other people that have been in the chart group that have gone on, probably not to the heights Jim has, but have, have really looked at, at oh, franchising is another example. When people call me and say, well, geez, why do you want to own a franchise or, or get back into operations? And so I just explain to them the pitfalls and it's not for everybody. And I think I've probably helped more people by convincing them not to do it than actually going out mm-hmm. and jumping into that world. Because uh, I, I didn't make any money being a franchisee. I've, I've lost money net net in the whole scheme of things. But I have learned more being an operator that I've turned into profitable endeavors elsewhere. Had I never been a franchisee, I wouldn't have learned what I learned. To me, it's the PhD in business that I, that I needed. It was expensive, 
but um, I'm mm-hmm. using that knowledge to help others and take out and uh, off premises and really doing things that I never would have learned had I just stayed in that one career path way back when. Yeah. Well, every education comes at a cost. <laughs> That's yep. for sure. Right. Student loans. <laughs> or one of the, the yeah, yeah right one of the the costs of of being in our business and i was when i was listening to your story about getting out of chuck e cheese and thinking okay he's he's kind of gotten out realizing that the restaurant industry is a grind if it's how many hours in the day and week and month it'll, it'll take every one from you if you let it and then you got back into it and I, I see that was your you learned a lot from it and everything advice was you talk about giving advice to people is, is there some things that you use? You're a busy guy now. I got to believe all the things you're doing. How do you find that balance in your life of the, the home life and the work life? Because you can just be working all the time. You can. And I think that's the biggest thing. When I looked at, back at getting into operations, I always joked around there's no training emergencies. You know, when you're a restaurant trainer or if I'm a consultant, there's very few emergencies. And so I could really block out time in my life to do what I wanted to do and then work as much or as little as I wanted to. And I I like to work a lot. Um, When we wanted to get back into operations, what I realized was my speaking and consulting business, there was never going to be anything to sell at the end. I had no liquidity event to walk away and sell the, you know, sell the business and, and get a check and retire. And so I was trying to look down the road a little bit and I says, wow, you know what, let's, let's get into this brand early and let's build it to where it makes sense for us so that 10, 15 years from when we started, we could sell it and, you know, have our liquidity event in our lives. Um, it, it ended up not working like that, but that I used my, time as a franchisee. And again, I still am a franchisee. We have one restaurant down from a high of 17. Um, I'm the only one left running it. And so now I've got to balance those things again and you know, run my restaurants three and a half hours from my house. So I got to plan mm. most of those things and some things you can't plan, but I really use that as the base for what I do in consulting. So as an example, you know, I wrote a book on hiring. I wrote a book on catering. Uh, I talk a lot in the off-premises space about how to drive catering sales, ghost kitchens, virtual restaurants. I even put my own virtual restaurant brand in about six weeks ago. And so for me, I use it as a lab, what works, what doesn't work. And so when I speak or consult with brands, I can tell them, look, I've lived this. I do this each and every day. I have tried item X or vendor Y, and here's what I think will work for you. And here's why why it will or won't work for you. So um, I really love living in that world, but it's just fun to be able to get out of it every once in a while and go share it with others. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. That we, we talked a little bit on the front end of the show with what COVID has done to our industry with shutting down indoor dining. And that's something you've, you've talked about a little bit here already with the off-premise and you have the off-premise uh, domination.com mm-hmm. website or that you do with. What, what, are, what are you doing there? Because I think what we're th- realizing is some of this stuff is here to stay. It's not going to go back to where we were. It's going to be here. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing I see right now as a, as a challenge, especially for me, but in trying to help others, is everybody thinks they already do takeout or they do catering or they do off-premises. And they may, but they don't maximize it. And, and usually the example I give them is uh, one of my uh, good long-term colleagues is a chain in Tennessee called PALS, P-A-L-S. And they run a drive-through with 250 cars an hour. Hmm. So when I give them the example of, hey, McDonald's has a drive-through, Burger King has a drive-through, Starbucks has a drive-through, 
But when you really understand what a drive-through can do, 250 cars an hour is a lot different than 75. And so, yes, Whoa. you may do takeout. However, there are a lot of pieces of that puzzle, and, and we've kind of identified around 11 key things. I, I'm not going to rattle them all off right now, but you know, menu technology, customer relations, um, marketing, and there, there's so many pieces of this puzzle. And being able to help a client wade through all of the technology is an example. Because ever since COVID hit, there's been all these pop-up third-party deliveries, online ordering companies, new POS vendors. Everybody's just trying to get a piece of the puzzle, but most of them are just trying to stay in the middle. You know, they're just trying to collect the pennies without really having a lot at risk or doing anything. And so we help the clients wade through all of those things because in a lot of cases in, in the restaurant business, they may tell the marketing person or the IT person or even the operations person, hey, go put our takeout strategy together. But they don't know all of those areas of expertise, and it's so hard to wade through those things that that's really what we've been trying to do and help people be successful in that space. With with all the um, the speed that you're looking, and that's really what this comes down to in a lot of ways, I think, is that it's got to be the right menu item. It's got to be fast, and so the food gets there with the highest quality and all that. How much of it do you look at as technology, and how much of it is just good operational efficiencies? You know, it's a combination of many things. I, I think the biggest challenge for operators out there right now is is staying in front of the consumer because I know my wife and I, as an example, we may have gone out to 10 or 15 restaurants when we used to go out to eat regularly. When it comes to takeout, we only think of three or four, and everybody else isn't in our consideration set for a variety of reasons. One restaurant doesn't have online ordering. One restaurant, their food doesn't travel well. You know, one restaurant can't get it right. And so we, we tick all those companies off the list and the ones that are doing it right have found a way to make it easy for me to order whether it's digitally even if they have to answer the phone um, you know just let me order from where I want to order the way I want to order and then the packaging has become very critical because everybody's learned that I, there's companies that don't sell french fries because they don't travel well and, and that is correct but there's a packaging solution for that, that if they would just look into it, they could put that into place and give the guest what they want and, and keep the product quality maintained. And, and then I think, you know, the third piece of that is the technology. So many different companies out there. What's the right technology for your brand? Uh, and then finally putting the operational systems in place to make sure that you're getting everything in the bag. I, I use an example. My restaurant's three and a half hours from my house. I stay in a hotel when, I'm, when I go down there for multiple days, and you know, I ordered a, a salad from an unnamed concept, and they even ask you on the, on the online order, do you need utensils, which I thought, that's a great system to put into place. Yes, I do. I go over there, I get my food, I get back to my hotel room, I'm eating a salad, and I have no utensils. And, you know, I, the salad just doesn't taste good when you're eating it with your fingers. So there's little <laughs> things like that that I think are often overlooked. And, uh, you know, to me, what I really started doing in my restaurant as a drive through fortunately, so we've been very successful in, in the COVID environment. Um, we, we use a QR code that's just a, two, a simple two-question survey that's on, on a card. So we just throw them in the bag, whether it's going out with DoorDash or a customer just going through a drive through and. I have found so many little things that we miss. And, and luckily, they're little things, but the customer lets you know. I get a text alert, and it's like, hey, we rated you as four out of five because you forgot my, my ketchup for the fries. 
Okay, well, at least I can ping them back immediately. Sorry about that. We'll get that fixed. Here's 10% off your next time, or here's a free sandwich your next time. And so they help us win back the customer. And I think that that piece is very, very overlooked by everybody now because most customers, if you get home, and I, I didn't call the restaurant and say, my fork's missing. You know, I just tell everybody else, don't order from there because they don't give you a fork. Um, they right. don't give a fork. Maybe we'll uh, have a new tagline <laughs> for that. But um, but I think that's really some of the keys that, that the good companies are out there doing and dominating in the space. You know, to drill down a little bit more on, on packaging, um, we've talked about this in length, uh, you know, because, so yeah, like you said, some places not sending their fries out because they, they can't get them to travel well. And then they switch it up like, oh, we'll just do poutine instead or something like that. They modify, which is, you know, a solution. What have you found specifically in technology, delivery technology, packaging that, that has worked well for getting fries to a customer in a way that preserves the structural integrity of the French fry? Yeah, I think there's a couple things um, because plastic obviously keeps moisture in that's like the worst thing so as an example we we had don fox on our podcast he's the ceo of firehouse subs the other day they do steamed subs and they change to like a sugar cane based package that just absorbs some of the moisture Hmm. and so that preserves their product quality they actually even give those out in the the dine-in cases right now instead of doing baskets with uh, the the like the wrap in it because yeah. of the covid you know yeah. aspect of it so they really changed their whole takeout strategy and it, it bled into their store the thing that i've seen in regards to fried foods it's called saver pack it's s a v r p a k uh, it's a pack a patch that fits inside the it sticks to the lid of the box and it just it absorbs the condensation out of it and it's ridiculous how the different french fries taste as an example um and so again i just encourage people to try something like that and the immediate pushback i get is oh it's 25 cents more it's going to cost more and we can't do this and i'm sure the firehouse franchisee said the same thing about their packaging but when you run it for a little while and the customer says oh my gosh these french fries are Mm. great and i'm going to buy french fries from you instead of not buying anything um that's that's where you make the money back but ultimately you're trying to keep your product quality mm-hmm. as as good as you can and i think even simple things um i learned this from chef brian duffy in philadelphia he's you know when people come in to pick up food in his restaurant he'll tell them hey look you know is somebody at home yeah my wife is okay you know tell her to turn the oven on at 450 preheat it so when you get home just pop this in the heat preheated oven for five minutes it's going to taste just as good as you ate it here and that that wasn't even a packaging hardware cost it was simply just a operational training piece to tell the customer how to maximize the quality of the food mm. because you're eating it 20 minutes later in your house i think a lot of people are missing that component that, that oh, that's yeah. a simple Huge. cost-free solution or, you know even this if you want to kind of eliminate the human element of that just making a little sticker yep. and putting it on the bag mm-hmm. or putting it on the the container to just educate the guests to make sure I, I love pizza you know there's nothing better than eating pizza in a restaurant coming right out of the oven when you get it home you know i, I go pick it up because i'm a little anal about it i'd rather have it be five minutes on the delivery time versus <laughs> being up to somebody else right but it just doesn't taste as good and so if you know you tell we get the preheat the oven before I leave, so we you know get back home, throw it in there for just a few minutes. Wow, it tastes great, and and that's the kind of things that restaurants are missing that cost nothing. Mm. So we're talking a lot about the things that the restaurant can do with the different patches inside the container and things. So the restaurant does it right, and now they give it to third party, 
Mm-hmm. And there's where another area of I knew you were going to go there. You knew Rich. it, right? Because I'm not. Uh, I'm going to be careful. But we, we've had our experiences. Yes. We'll just say that. <laughs> so, uh, thoughts on on third party and and for operators, any advice on managing that or helping? I don't know what we're what to do on that. Really, I'm probably going to have the counterintuitive response to that. And my take on third party is to sign up with as many as you can because you have to use them twofold. One is as a sales funnel for you to get new customers in. And I'll talk about that in a second. The second one is to just get your brand name out there. You know, it's free to advertise on DoorDash and Grubhub and Uber Eats. You're putting your logo on there. So it's a great way to remind the customer who's not driving by your restaurant today that you're still there. So I think that first and foremost is the reason you should be on them, and that's free. The second one, um, everybody complains about the financial aspect and the delivery aspect. I, I understand all that, and I feel their pain too. I just use that as a leverage tool to create a sales funnel for me. So putting a, an incentive, as an example, for a free sandwich inside of every bag. We can't say deliver order directly for me versus the third party because you're violating your agreement with the delivery company. But if I say, hey, get into my loyalty program and you get a free sandwich. Um, I'm trying to just drop people into my sales funnel. So now I can then really incentivize them to order for me directly. And I think those are some of the things, you know, to get the data. And I think some of the companies like Olo, the larger online ordering companies have figured out people can go to the brand's website, but get delivery from the third party because all these vendors are sitting out there saying, hey, we're going to help you migrate third-party delivery to first-party ordering. Well, that's great, but if you don't deliver, you don't solve the customer's need of I want it delivered. Mm-hmm. And so the, the intermediaries like Olo and some other companies, you can order from the brand's website but still deliver with a third party. So the brand keeps the data. The brand owns the customer. Yes, they're outsourcing the delivery to the third party, but – I'm okay with that. I mean, I love getting third-party orders because it, a couple months down the road, that's going to be my customer. And that 30% fee or whatever it is you pay, to me, it's just a marketing cost. And, and in, in, the, in the end, as a customer, I, the way I explain it to everybody, it's like Amazon Prime. If I'm sitting in my restaurant and I need to order something, uh, I don't go to the vendor website. I go to Amazon Prime first because it's free delivery. I can look at everything under the sun at one at one time, that's how the most of the customers use third party. Mm. I'm hungry. What am I going to eat? And they start scrolling through. And if you're not there, you're not even in their decision set. That, that's that's some good points. It really is um, that they go there to, to find out what they're hungry for. And if you're not you're not in the game, you're 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 not going to uh, even get look, get a look from them. Right. Do you have any concerns though on the on the third party? I, I think you've kind of spun it, but. Uh, once they they have the fact that uh, this customer ordered ribs from you on Monday nights, do they then take that information and now use that to go market to or sell to other operators and and take your customer and walk them down the street, so to speak? Um, they do. You know, they own the data. Yeah. That's the real value. I, I think if if I was DoorDash or Grubhub or Uber Eats, uh, I I think their value is in all of that customer purchasing data as well as um, just the delivery software. You know, I, I would almost sell that to people to teach them how to do delivery because there's a magic to what they do. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the big issue is who owns the data. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, work trying to work with your credit card companies. And th there's some of the third parties now are, are sharing aggregated data. There's newer people coming to the table like Hunger that will sh show you hotspots of where people order. So they won't give you specifics, but at least as a consumer or as, as a client of theirs, you can see where are the people ordering from? What are they ordering? So that, that at least gives you a little bit of an idea. As an example, if I'm selling sandwiches um, and I know here's where the hotspots are, I'm going to drop my own advertising in that and, again, leverage the power of the third-party company instead of fighting it. Hmm. That's, that's a good approach, I guess. They are here. Uh, they're here to stay, it seems, and uh, you might as well figure out a way to use it, right? Good advice. Uh, you know, it's, I, I, I can be accused of being the old man on the porch. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like I, I was probably one of the last restaurant companies that allowed beards and tattoos and, you know, stuff that for me, I just don't quite understand personally. But when you look at it at the end of the day, it's like I can fight this all yeah. day long and never win. And I could complain about how hard it is to hire or I could just open up my horizons a little bit, get rid of some biases I may have had and, and just realize, look. I'm just I'm just trying to get food to the customer. And if that's just one of the ways to do it, so be it. But figure out how you can use that as an entree to getting that customer to ultimately order from you. Yeah, we you came, kind of gave us a nice uh, uh, transition there to talking about the employees. The restaurant does a lot of things. We have delivery. There's a lot of new technology that we can implement. But we still have what we've had for how many years uh, since the start is people. And that is becoming the, a bigger challenge with $15 an hour, potentially um, this, this drive for the getting the best employees and paying them. And there's a lot that's going to go into employee management in, in restaurants. Um, and that's something I know you deal a lot with as well. So any thoughts on where that's going or anything for our listeners on that? Yeah, I'm going to probably take the counterintuitive approach to this as well. And uh, the, the really high-performing companies don't have a hiring problem. They really don't. Uh, I know when I went to go for my first interview when I was 16 years old at Chuck E. Cheese, my dad said, oh, you kids have it so easy. You have no work ethic. You don't know how to dress. You don't know that. And fast forward to me 30 years later when I have a son and a daughter going out in the workforce, I'm saying the same thing. So nothing's changed. I mean, literally nothing's changed in, in that regard. Um, I watched my daughter go into high school band and I watched a band director take 300 high school ding-dongs and in eight weeks make them into a marching machine and this is the same generation that all of us restaurant people say oh they have no work ethic they don't like to wear uniforms they don't like structure yes they do and when you create an environment that you have a high performing group you demand a lot but you pay them a lot if they perform it, it, it has no problems attracting the right kind of people. And, and I'll harken back to that chain pals in Tennessee. Can you imagine working in an 1,100 square foot cinder block restaurant that only does drive through pushing 250 cars an hour through the drive through? It is a high stress environment. You cannot make a mistake. They have under 50% hourly employee turnover. And you could probably look at the three QSR competitors on the three other corners, and they probably have now hiring signs out, and they probably think there's just crummy applicants that come in. And so if you create the culture of rewarding high-performing employees and advertise that, you have to think about recruiting like fishing. You have, to, you have to know what you want to catch. I can't catch a shark in the middle of Dallas, Texas. I, I can't. I could fish all day long. I'm never going to catch one. So I have to I have to know what I want to catch, 
I have to know what they like. I have to know where they are. And I have to put attractive bait on the hook. And um, I'm working with a client right now. I don't know if you guys have heard of Bucky's Convenience Store, but it's a 60,000 square foot convenience store, 100 gas pumps. Okay, It's the size of a Best Buy. (laughs) And you go in there and they have a sign right over the front door, Bucky's minimum wage, $15 an hour. Now, I'm in Texas where minimum wage is $7.25, and I have never heard of anybody hiring at $7.25 here in Texas, but you have all the other places right around this Bucky's now hiring, now hiring, now hiring. Well, if, if you need a job and you you can just go to Bucky's and make 15 bucks an hour to be a cashier uh, because they're advertising, that's their bait, that's their hook to get you in. So figure out what that hook is. If I was hiring servers, I'd be saying, you know, now hiring servers makes $700,000 a week. That, that's the hook. And so then you got to teach them how to do that so that they make a lot of money. They're happy working there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the other piece that people miss on this is they they want to think they have a winning organization, but they don't bring more winners in. And when mm. you throw a clean shirt into a dirty laundry, if you have a crummy environment and you bring a great person in, they're not going to last very long. Um, you know, Going back to my daughter, when she turned 18, she went and got a job at a Mexican food restaurant. I kid you not. The first shift she worked was May the 5th. And if you're not familiar with May the 5th in Mexican restaurants, it's Cinco de Mayo. And she lasted four hours. And I'm sure they probably said, oh, that was a crummy hire. You know what? They're idiots because they're hiring a good person, putting them in a horrible environment, not training them to do well, and they wonder why they leave. So I always just tell restaurant managers, Look in the mirror, you know, pull all the weeds out of your yard, clean up the property, make it look good, then go bring the new people in. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that there really isn't such a thing as lazy. It's just lack of motivation. And how do you keep a good employee motivated without always having to dangle a carrot in front of them? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, and I learned this from pals, uh, we do it all in a pre-employment assessment. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't dance. I hate to dance, but I love to play sports. So if you made me go dance, I'm a motivated individual, but, but not in that regard to dance. Uh, I, I can work out as good as anybody. If I have a personal trainer, there yelling at me, or if I go to a boot camp to TJ, do this for five minutes, then do this, then do this. Great. I can't do it on my own. And so I can go to work in my case, I can go to work and be a rock star, but working out, I need to coach. And so, you know, too many managers in the restaurant industry think they're hiring rock stars that are just going to have this magical motivation to do things on their own. You have to find the right kind of person to do that. And then you have to work with them because most of them need to be managed. And it's not so much the, the carrot that's dangling out in front of them. It's just being, being there for them, talking to them, getting a little bit of their input, figure out how they can make the places work a little better, what we can do to make it a little more fun to be here. Um, but you have to have high standards. And the, the managers that struggle with people are the ones that don't have high standards. They let people slack, and then all of a sudden that permeates the whole group. And, and it's not that they're bad people. They're just not led by a great manager. Right. They talk a lot about um, the young kids and like you mentioned your daughter that people think that these young people and, and you give them the right direction and some leadership and there they are in this this marching band. You see it a lot, though, with the, um, some young kids and um, you you kind of think about like, well, they're they're victims of the times or they're always have their nose buried in a cell phone or they're afraid to interact with people. And I guess. You just have to lead them in the right way and and show people that they are able to be a great employee. 
Well, I think some of it is you have to put them in the right spot. If somebody's very shy, they don't need to be a cashier. They don't need to be a server. They don't need to be a host. Good point. They're just going to be in an environment that's uncomfortable, and they're never going to be happy. And so there, there's got to be a time. Go to a Chick-fil-A as an example, okay? They have the bubbliest, friendliest people out front. You ever walk in a kitchen at a Chick-fil-A? It's not the same. Okay, the people that are back there love just cranking food out as fast as they can, working as hard as they can, nose down. They don't want to talk to anybody. They want to make food. They've done a great job putting the right people in the right positions. And I I think about this generation and kind of going back to the carrot question, you know, for some kid that's like a social media magnet, you let them you do your marketing. Let them do your social media. That You don't have to pay them more money. Let them do those kind of things and let them help your business with a, a part of the business you're probably not very good at. Um, because you've got to find the things that they like, that they can help you with, uh, because it'll solve a problem for you. And it'll keep them in tune with what they want to do. And it's a little more of a fun place to work then. Very good. Right. I, I've heard you mention some things about loyalty, customer loyalty, um, and I, I hear also that, you know, we get a good um, employee loyalty. Those two areas are very important to a business. What are, what are just providing a good work environment? Do you have any other things operators should be looking at to gain that loyalty? From the employees or for the customers? I, I think actually both. I think they're both very important. I think first and foremost for the employees, it, it's, it's very simple to be clear and upfront with them with what the expectations are. I know when I joined Chuck E. Cheese, whatever it was, 38 years ago, I didn't really plan on this being my career, but I got in there and it was fun and I could see aspects of it. And then as I started to grow in that organization, somebody took me under my, under their wing and said, Hey, look, you know, you're get, you're getting, I was getting an MBA at the time. It's like, you know what? There's all these other avenues available for you at the corporate office, marketing, real estate, finance, training. I'd never thought of that. I just thought working in a restaurant is working in a restaurant. And so somebody said, there's, there's a greener pastures out there. You don't have to leave the industry, but you can do what you want and, and stay in a fun environment like this. So I think managers getting to know their people and just trying to help them out. Um, I, I, I got a a, a note on LinkedIn one day, and, and it was from a manager that I did a class at Chuck E. Cheese like 30 years ago, and he found me on LinkedIn. He said, hey, thank you. That was one of the things that really just helped me out way back then, and it was like, wow, what a, we have such an impact on people as managers in the restaurant industry, especially first-time employees, that if you can just get them under your wing, teach them a little life skills, what it's like to be successful. Um, open your mind and learn from them too. Don't be the old man on the porch and, and get some of their ideas because this generation loves that. And it, it's tough in a franchise environment or in a corporate environment sometimes to do some of the things that they want, but they want to be heard. They want to have input and, and just teach them those things because the second part of your question is really the guest loyalty. Guests love seeing the same face. They love being recognized by the employees when they come in. It's hilarious when I go to my store because I don't go there as much anymore. And I'll be like, hey, have you ever been to Witch Witch before? And they're like, who are you, dude? I'm here every week. <laughs> you know, like they're offended. I didn't know who they were because all the other employees that I have working there know the guest. And so, again, I think it's just people understand we make mistakes, getting on those, the feedback that you get. Learning those guests, if you have a loyalty program where you can track somebody and, you know, again, they come in 
all these times and you just throw them a free free meal every once in a while they just they have to feel more important than just the regular person walking in off the street or placing an online order and, and it's it's simple you know it's danny meyer the hospitality guru abcd always be connecting dots and you know just realize i always use like whatever they're wearing if they're wearing a i went to texas so if they're wearing an ou hat i'm like oh man OU, i hate OU. what just you have to find that personal connection mm-hmm. and teach your employees to you have to have the personal connection to the employees and then teach the employees how to make that connection with the guests because then all of a sudden even when you do screw up the customers almost apologize like hey i, I hate to bring this to your attention because i know you're so good but yep. i know you want to know right that type of a, a guest complaint is so different than the the bomb that gets thrown on social media about the, you know that you create you killed their world because you forgot their ketchup <laughs> no you're right and that's that's an important skill i think i've heard it described as maybe a bit of modeling too like you look at somebody and you find something about them and you relate to it right and mm-hmm. uh what is that abc abcd is it always be connecting always be connecting dots, dots? yep yep exactly and, and, and again i'll use an example of that because i read that book a few years ago and i taught my employees this is how we're going to drive catering sales you always be connecting dots. So as an example, I had somebody go through my drive through my restaurant. I happened to be working the window. She had a, a scrubs on from a Baylor Scott and White Hospital. I said, oh, my gosh, man, I would love to do some catering down there for you all. She was like, oh, man, I would love to. So, you know, I got her card. Lo and behold, we've probably in the last three months done $4,000 worth of catering business for them. And it was all because a 10-second conversation because I used the clue. Mm-hmm. Everybody's yammering about no catering sales because of COVID. Guess what? Pay attention. Your your customers are in your restaurant right now. Start talking to them about it. You'll be surprised. Somebody's a pharmaceutical rep. Somebody's got a high school baseball team they need to feed right now. There's a PTA event going on. There's a church thing. There's They work for Amazon. I mean, my goodness, if you have a bunch of industrial warehouses around your big box retailers, they're walking in with the logo on their shirt talk to them, find out who it is, and you'll be surprised at how much business you'll get out of those things. Hmm. Oh, take care of your customer, your employees like you want them to take care of your customers. And uh, yeah, very good. Yeah, everybody says treat your employees like family. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know if that's such a, <laughs> I see the way people treat their families. Um, and that's probably not the good thing. <laughs> so. No, you're right. How you want them to treat your employees. Very good. You know, I, I, I was saying earlier in the show too, I had a quote from, did you ever hear this quote from Jeffrey Gittimer where he talks about customer satisfaction? He says, customer satisfaction is worthless. Customer loyalty is priceless. That's always stuck with me from something that I heard him say a long time ago. And it's true. It really is. I'll give you a simple example because, again, I've read a lot of his stuff, and I, that, that's a great quote. Um, we, we do a lot of guest surveys, and I consult with people, and it's amazing. When you survey the employee friendliness, and this is uh, over a large number of companies that I've seen, if you get a four out of five on employee friendliness, one out of three guests will give you a five on the taste of the food. If you get a five on employee friendliness – 90% of the guests give you a five on the taste of the food. Now, when you think about that, the food's tasting the same when it comes out of the kitchen. Mm-hmm. But the perception of the food is very significantly weighted on how friendly the server or the cashier or the drive through person is. And this is for casual dining, fine dining, fast food. It, it really is. I, when I talk to chefs as an example, I'm like, look, your, your fate is in the hands of your servers. And that really, it's true through all the data. If we can just be friendly to the guests out there, ultra friendly, 
and make them loyal, like you said in that Gittimer quote, it makes a huge difference in how they perceive everything else. Oh, that really sounds does. like real data collected on love being an ingredient. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, again, I always tell people the restaurant industry in regards to services is a big dose of Southwest Airlines and a little dose of American Delta United. Pick the other one. The big dose of Southwest Airlines is exactly what you said. Put a little love into this. Southwest is known for being super friendly. They, they interact with their guests a little bit quirky. Um, every restaurant should be like that. You have to be super friendly. Where the other airlines, I think, and I'm one of the, the flyers who doesn't fly Southwest because pre-COVID I used to fly a ton, I fly American, I live in Dallas, but I get treated a lot differently because I'm on their top tier than the other average person that buys a ticket once a year does. And so that's what I tell restaurants. If you want to deliver great service, treat everybody phenomenally. Just have a great hospitality bend to you. Be friendly. But the ones that spend a lot of money with you, those are the ones that you need to treat even better. And that's what, the, that's what those other airlines do. The problem is they miss the basic part that Southwest has. And I think in the restaurant industry, we have the ability to put both of those together and really, truly own the guest. Oh, absolutely true. So uh, we talked a, a little bit about uh, the COVID coming out of COVID. Um, and I think we talked that uh, we think that the trends are going to stay, the delivery, the curbside. Um, all those different areas. What should operators be doing right now, getting ready? Because I think there's also this feeling of some pent-up demand that we think once people start feeling everyone's vaccinated and here we come again, uh, what are some good things that operators can be looking at right now to make sure we're ready? Yeah, I think uh, first and foremost, those dining rooms are going to fill up. I cringe when I hear all these companies, oh, we're going to build drive-through only restaurants, no seating, all for delivery. I think they're knee-jerk and way too much the other way. I know as a consumer, I just want to go out with our friends. And we, we went out last Friday night with another couple. And it was the first time that lady had been out with somebody else in a year. Oh, boy. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this felt so good. So I think we have a tailwind behind us as restaurateurs that people do want to come back and eat. Um, I think the tricky thing for us is the takeout piece is not going to just go away overnight. So percentage-wise, it's going to go down because your dine-in is going to go up. But I, I think from a dollar factor, it's going to stay the same. And the tricky thing is going to be for us to really re-engage our staff on hospitality again. Because right now, it's all about contactless and fric frictionless. I ordered Chipotle for lunch, ordered it on my phone, drove over to the Chipotle, walked in the side door. My, my bag was on a rack, didn't talk to anybody, didn't see anybody, just grabbed my food and went out. Perfect. That was awesome. But that's going to go away, and our employees are used to not dealing with customers right now, uh, and they're going to have to get used to dealing with them again. And um, it's it's the masks are going to come off at some point. We're going to have to teach people to smile again and make eye contact <laughs> again. Um, and so as an operator, I would tell you, start gearing up for friendly hospitality, warming people back up again because they're, they're coming. I mean, it's yeah. we went out a couple Fridays ago, and, you know, they're on 50% capacity in Texas. I think they were probably releasing it today or raising it again today, but um, it was they were on an hour and a half wait. People want to go eat out again. It's just yeah. more fun to go eat out and have a few drinks and be with your friends instead of being cooped up in your house. I, I, as an operations guy, I have a fear of, like, when the restaurant is full, we fill all the tables. The kitchen is the kitchen's is taxed. We're busy. We're I don't know. Um, now, if we continue to increase and have more 
of the takeout. And also we're going to fill our restaurants back up again. I wonder about capacity issues in the kitchen. How do you, how do you get through that? Or what do you look at to, to streamline or do you reduce your menu to make it quicker or any thoughts on, on maybe that aspect of it? You know, that's been a, an interesting one. There's, there's the cheesecakes of the world, the Logan, Texas, uh, sorry, the Texas roadhouses of the world that they have not, they have by design not shrunk their menu and they've been incredibly successful. Then there's others. I mean, McDonald's hasn't sold a salad in a year. Um, I don't know if anybody's even missing them, but you know, they, they took them off the menu and they, they, so I think it's looking at what's the right strategy for your brand. Um, the Chipotle I went to was one of the newer ones that had a drive-thru. The drive-thru was packed. There was two people in line in the restaurant, but they have a separate line for the drive-thru. Now, every one of us can't put a new line in to handle takeout, but I do think it, it it's worth the time and the effort and the research to figure out what works for your brand. Ghost kitchens are an example right now. I, I, will ghost kitchens stay? I don't know. Um, but I deal with a client that's busy at lunch and busy at dinner. And I'm like, why do you want to do a ghost kitchen? All it's going to do is throw a monkey wrench in your systems. And there's others like me. I have a lunch business. I have no dinner business. So a ghost kitchen's perfect because it's something that's going to sell at night. And now once, if I'm busy at night again down the road, I'd like to just remove the ghost kitchen with not a lot of financial implications on it. If you redo your line, you better know what you're getting into because, you know, things may change over time. Yeah, good points. I had a question about Chuck E. Cheese. So you're back there back in the heyday, you know, like when Chuck E. Cheese was like the place, you know, and I was curious, do they keep the fun mentality from the top down or did it get kind of stuffy and corporate at the top? Yeah. I, so I was at Chuck E. Cheese from 1983 to 2001. Okay. And so in the early eighties, there was two competing brands, Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz. They Showbiz, went bankrupt. Yeah. They merged. Um, but Chuck E. Cheese, because the brand had so much equity with the, with the consumer, they kept that brand and they lived it. Every guest leaves happy. Um, they lived that, uh, up and down the corporate ladder. Now, when you go public, it becomes a little more difficult and there was a strain on everybody because you're trying to hit quarterly numbers. And that, that is, it's hard. Now, if you're performing, everybody's happy. You know, performance drives morale in a lot of cases. Um, I've left there, you know, I left there in 2001. I happened to go back because my boss, when I left at the time, was still there. He was retiring in September of 2020. <laughs> I got to go back and the, the old CEO came, the old president came, uh, myself and some other individuals. And there's still people that I worked with in 2001 that are still working there. Hmm. And they have a new leadership team in there. They're owned by private equity. And I will tell you, they're doing more. And, and they're in the worst of worst cases with COVID, you know, right. being, doing what they're doing. But that brand has done a phenomenal job living what they talk about top to bottom. And, and they'll get through these tough times. They're, they're making some shifts in their business. I think their new leadership group's doing a, a really good job trying to reposition it so that they're not so uh, dependent on just the walk-in business. But um, the companies, I think where most leaders miss the boat is it's, it's not bring your dog to work or have a ping pong table at the office that really determines the culture of the company. It, it really is, do you live what you say you're going to live? Are you behaving like you say you're going to behave? And finding like-minded people. I mean, personally, I'm not a bring your dog to work guy. It just drives me nuts. So if I went to work for somebody that was a bring your dog to work culture, I'm probably not going to be successful there because it's just not me. And, and so I think the, you know, the real key is have a clear message at the top 
and make sure you find people that are that want that same clarity in what they're doing from an employer. I dig that the the clarity, yeah, right right from the top. They're like, here's the expectations, and do you see yourself fitting in there? You know. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's um, you look at Chick Fil A; they have an incredibly clear culture. It's not right for everybody. Mm-hmm. Hard Rock Cafe, opposite end of the spectrum, but they have clarity as well. And, and I don't think the same person would be successful in in both of those environments. But they're going to find the right people. Hard Rock's all about freedom of expression, be yourself. That's not what other brands are like. So they they find the unique individuals that are like that. I don't like coffee. I'd be horrible working at Starbucks. They have a great culture. I just wouldn't fit in. And and that's that's why they shouldn't hire me because I won't be successful there. And, And that's what the good brands do. They have clarity at the top and they find people that will be successful in that environment. Okay. So, so TJ, uh, when you get a potential client that wants to bring you in and evaluate their restaurant, what are you looking for in, you know, what's your process and how do you evaluate how well the restaurant's running or how effective they are at what they do is how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I think first and foremost is understanding what the leadership wants. Because as an example, they could say, hey, TJ, I want you to come in here and train my employees. I could do that and they could write me a check. And if they're not going to run it the way I would, they're wasting their money. So I have to make sure the the leaders understand what they're asking for. As an example, if you want to improve service, okay, great. Then let's define what that is amongst us at the small table. I'm going to go out and talk to your employees first before we do anything because I want them to feel part of the process. And so to me, the effective restaurants are the ones that are listening to their employees and understanding what they need and then getting back to them to explain what they can do and, and what they can't do and why. And so to me, it's all about systems. And I'm not saying that it's rigid, black and white, my way or the highway. It's, it's understanding that there are some things that are non-negotiable. And then there's some things that have to have some flexibility. Like as an example, many restaurants put the steps of service in. And they all probably every casual dining restaurant has the same steps of service. The good ones, though, understand, and this is what we help people with. Somebody that's never been in your restaurant has a slightly different need than somebody that's there celebrating a special event. And if the server doesn't realize that and we treat everybody the same, you're going to lose. And so to me, it's really putting systems in place once we've defined what it is they want and making sure that we then train those systems and and most importantly, train the managers that are running the restaurants because they're the ones that are determining the culture and the standards in each of those individual restaurants. If you have a big chain of 300, you could have the, the mantra on the wall and everything you want at the corporate office. But if those 300 general managers aren't trained to live and breathe that same thing, you're going to have 300 different cultures out there. And so uh, I think many managers want to fix everything from the bottom up, but it's really not. It's from the middle out. It's, it's that general manager level and getting them to understand how can we make your life easy by, by helping you with tools and systems to raise the standards that moves the guests and the employee experience forward. And, and that to me is the key. And, and most restaurants don't start there. They, they just try and do it from the bottom up or they do it top down and nobody wants them. The guys in the middle are going to get smushed out in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone can, I think, recognize top down probably isn't going to be effective. And they think bottom up is, is the way to go. But you're, I think the piece that you said, which is so important is you got to keep stay in communication about what you can do and why you, you can do it or can't do it and kind of keep them involved in that, in that process. So 
Great stuff. Thank you. That's that's great advice for anybody that's uh, going to be opening a restaurant or, or looking at their own operations as things they can do. Very good. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate it. You know, it's um, I'm, I'm on this this role of I'm getting tired of people saying restaurants aren't a real job. You know, we people that work in the restaurant industry and are successful, they can go on and do anything else because this is way harder work than just about anything else somebody's being asked to do. We have to solve problems. We have to figure things out. We have to be masters of many tasks. We have to learn how to take care of the guest. That's a big um, part. Almost any other job simple. Yeah. And, uh, I, I've always, I've said this, um, I've had many conversations with people about this, that a lot of other countries, they have mandatory military service. I think in this country, we should have mandatory customer service or restaurant service. Two years, two years in the business. And that will make you, number one, just a lot better person in general. But it gives you uh, a work ethic and some values that you can apply anywhere else in your professional career. I think every restaurant employee would love that because you know what? Us restaurant employees don't walk in five minutes before close because we know what it's like to be on the other side. Right. Um, you know, we're not going to be that guy doing those kind of things. We also tip better. We also understand we're a little more forgiving with, you know, when somebody's in the weeds. It really does teach you a lot of valuable skills to, in essence, be a better customer. You know, right. delivering great customer service a lot of times depends on the customer. Mm-hmm. And if we could all work in the restaurant industry for a little while, hopefully we'd be better customers and it would just kind of spiral upward from there. Yeah, that, I, I, I would go as far as say just make you a better person, you know, <laughs> all around. Agree, yeah. yeah, You are right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, TJ, b- before we let you go, um, I th- thank you so much for today. It's been a great show. Sure. Um, I know that at some point, and throughout your career, you've probably given us a, a bunch of them already. Um, but there's been things that have been said to you or quotes or something that along the way has really just hit you and stuck with you. Do you have anything today that you could share with our guests that is really one of those things that just really uh, hits you hard and, and makes you think or drives you? Yeah, I've had a ton of them, but I think the one that I know I say this to my kids a lot and I say this to my employees a lot. I was told at Chuck E. Cheese a long time ago, in fact, by the boss who just retired. Um, he said, look, you're not getting paid what you're worth here, but the knowledge that you're gained he, gaining here is going to help you somewhere else. And so I, I always remembered that. I, I went out on my own. And then when, when I got into Witch Witch, and again, I love the brand Witch Witch, and I've learned so much. But when I looked at it, I, I, you start to go, oh, man, this isn't going to pan out. It's not going to work, work like we thought. I just had the little Roger doll pop up on my shoulder and say, you know what? You didn't make the money you thought you were going to here. But what you learned here is going to pay off elsewhere. And I'll be damned if it has not happened, just like he told me 30 years ago. And it's really, it's it's always easy to see the negative and complain about that. But if you just step back for a second and say, look, you know what? I'm learning things here. I'm gaining valuable experience here. I'm not going to get rich here, but you use that ability somewhere else. That to me has been the best advice I've, I've had because it gets you out of the, oh, woe is me. And it says, look, yeah, it didn't work out for this time. It's not the end of the world. Just find the next thing that you'll be good at and you'll make your money there. No, oh, great advice. And it's so true in, in so many ways that everything you do gives you some more experience to draw from. And that's really a good experience in the end. Yeah. And again, just we're in the restaurant business. We help others. And I, you know what? All those good things you do for people are going to come around to you somewhere down the road. Just takes a little patience. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So, and also, TJ, I uh, will give you a, a 
second here. If you anybody wants to reach out to you for uh, some help with your one of your businesses or um, something like, where can they where can they look for information on what you do? Yeah, um, and and your books too. Where can they? Where can they yeah, go? Yeah, I um, appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. Um, I wrote a couple, my franchise group's called Smart Restaurant Group. So we've got a couple of smart restaurant guides kind of playing off the dummies books. Uh, we've got one on operations, one on recruiting, and one on catering. Um, they're available at offpremisesdomination.com. And uh, you can just book a free 15-minute call with me if you want to wrap or ask some questions. I'm happy to do that. Or uh, you can see our products and consulting services for what we do to help restaurants, uh, not only in that off-premises space, but that's a good starting point with everything that's going on today. Okay. Well, thanks thanks again for uh, taking the time with us today. We really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun for me. I've been in the business a long time. My mother still is running her restaurant, so I've got a lot of good uh, in, uh, insight there for her. I appreciate it. And I'm sure our guests found a lot there as well. So thanks again. I wish you the best of luck in everything. Continue going forward. And uh, thanks again for being a guest today on the Volrath Feed. Appreciate you having me. Thanks. Well, Justin, if you are a restaurateur, a person in this industry, that is a episode you should rewind and listen to again. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a couple times. Yeah. There's, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, a lot of value, a lot of value to gain from anybody in the food service industry, and and I would even venture to say beyond that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just so much that that he has experienced and that he's willing willing to share. And and I I've always found that that true wisdom is being able to learn from somebody else's mistakes, mm-hmm. and so you don't have to experience it yourself. And some people, you know, of course we. We have to learn by by screwing things up ourselves, but <laughs> get and, that PhD how much, ourselves, like you <laughs> talked <right>? about, right? <laughs> <laughs> but if you can, you, you'll be so much more ahead of the game if you can take value from somebody else's experience and and build upon that. Yeah, now he's he's the real deal. Like he said, he, he, you're in the industry. There's no replacing having that experience, uh, living that life, speaking from it in that way. And, and understanding it. And then his attitude of, you know, his Chuck E. Cheese uh, scenario there where he talked about it's all it's all going to come back someday. All the things you're learning here are going to help mm-hmm. you in some way someday. And, and it's true. Everything we do is our experiences and we build upon them. And uh, just a really good show. A lot of great advice. Um, I, I was busy writing the whole time trying to take some notes because he <laughs> had so many good things. Well, it makes me wonder, when does he ever switch off? It seems like he's just always on that, that whole ABCD, yeah. you know, always, uh, always be he's always on. dots. Uh, always be connecting dots, you know, that's and it's just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a fantastic one. Yeah. And, but I wonder if he dreams about work, <laughs> you know, like all the time and <laughs> just coming up with yeah. great, great ideas well, he's everywhere just, and anywhere. You can tell he likes what he does. So all these right. things that he talks about isn't work, isn't like he has to sit down and, and memorize it. He naturally enjoys it, so it just sticks with him. And you can tell. Mm-hmm. He, he enjoys it. He enjoys the industry. He enjoys, I think he enjoys all the other things that he's talking about with the technology and the motivating people. And it's just all, for him, a, a lot of excitement out of it, a lot of energy I get, I'll bet he gains from it mm-hmm. all. So, Yeah. And it, it comes back to what he said. He's just like, I just, I want to get people 
I'm, I'm going to share the food with them. Yeah. You know, he's he is he's he's a food service guy. He's a customer service guy, and everything else just boils down to hospitality. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. All right, another good one. We mm-hmm. rack that one up. Very good. So, Justin, any closing thoughts for today then from you? You bet. I would like to remind everyone to click that subscribe button so you never miss another moment with a chef or food service industry professional again. And while you're at it, if you could also recommend us to a friend, let them know how much you enjoy what's going on here. We would greatly appreciate that as well. Right. Any ideas, any thoughts about the show, please let us know that at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And as I like to close out the show, a little quote from my dad, who always said, do everything as as if a customer is watching you, and you'll know you'll be doing it right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week ahead. Until next time, take care.